So I was thinking we could talk about your long driveway. <laughs> I still haven't seen your long driveway. <laughs> yeah, but I think you might end up being disappointed. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Are You Sitting Uncomfortably with me, Gemma Greaves. This is the podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. And in my prickly chair this time is the one and the only Crawford Hollingworth. Best-selling author of God and How Your Brain is Wired, Crawford is quite possibly one of the most prominent behavioural change experts of our time. Co-founder of The Behavioural Architects, a multi-award winning consultancy, which works with some of the biggest companies and organisations around the world. He writes and lectures regularly on how new knowledge from the behavioural sciences can empower behavioural change and has had over, and this is a big figure here, 250 papers published. Married to Kathy, a social researcher and co-author of his latest book, and dad to Harry and Maddie, it's fair to say Crawford is known in both marketing and academic circles for his very big and lovely brain. And crucially, <laughs> the ability to make you think and do differently, which I have no doubt he is going to do today. I am so looking forward to this. Thank you, James. Time wow. to begin. <laughs> wow, yeah. That's, I think that's made me feel very uncomfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> well, my first question, quite aptly, is, Crawford, are you sitting uncomfortably? James, I am. I haven't felt in such a reflective mode that has made me feel so uncomfortable, I think possibly in my life. <laughs> it's kind of the first time in my life I think I've looked backwards and thought about what I've learned and what being uncomfortable has made in my journey in life. And that is really weird, because I think I always believed if you look back, you're going to turn to rock or salt. Okay, so I'm going to dive right in. What is your uncomfortable truth? Wow, uh, it's, it's such a question now, because it's like, you know, I love all of these podcasts. And when I thought about one uncomfortable truth, it seems to snowball into many other uncomfortable truths. And I think that's, again, about re reflecting. And I guess, I think the weird thing was I thought about myself as a human being before I was 20. And I think the uncomfortable truth that I've never, ever said before is I may have the language wrong, but I kind of think I wasn't a very nice person up till I was 20. I don't think I cared for anyone or anything. I, I think I was kind of bizarrely almost like, Almost literally the opposite of where I am now. Like I was almost sociopathic. I was going to say it's hard to believe that knowing you as I do now, that sounds the absolute opposite to how you are now. I think, I mean, I think I'd like to go back in history because maybe there was a big flash of light and then someone actually came and replaced me. They realised they put the wrong person on earth because from the age of 20, literally everything is like the other side of the coin. And I look back at... I don't know. I had some very weird, weird life. But I, I really don't think I cared for anyone or anything. I did weird stuff. I remember 
thinking it was fun to, I don't know, maybe go and burgle an associated dairies thing because I could at the age of seven or or to get expelled because it was fun. I got expelled from three schools because I thought it was interesting. You know, I didn't care what anyone thought about it. And all through that kind of time, I, I think I, yeah, I lacked emotion. And then the weird thing was then everything in my life from 20 has been about emotional connection. The only thing I care about is the warmth of emotion. I think I used to wear my heart on my sleeve. Now I hold it in my hands and people can either look after it or smack it. And I kind of, sometimes it hurts, sometimes I love it. But I did that. And before, I don't think I had a heart. Maybe that's it. Maybe they turned up and gave me my heart they'd forgotten when I was 20. And that kind of changed me. But I think I, I also reflected... I think I had a, I mean, I think I had a nice childhood, but when I thought about it, it was not a normal childhood. So tell us about your childhood. Oh, forgive my family who might not have thought about this for a while, but um, I had two uh, extraordinary parents, both career medical professionals, both extraordinarily powerful in their own fields. And I kind of grew up in a family in London where my parents, very loving parents, but weren't really there very much when I was very young. Because in those days, if you were a pioneer and doctor, you were working 110 hours a week and whatever. And I think it was only a bit of a while in my life when I look back, I realized that the nannies that I had looking after me, um, my dad was doing a lot of pioneering psychiatry work in, around kind of families and at the Maudsley Hospital. And my mum was at the Royal Free at the time. And I always thought these nannies were a bit strange. It turned out they were kind of strange. So one of my nannies, what was her name? Oh, Maria. Oh, my God. I remember I was seven. I came down to the kitchen. Maria is stark naked, dancing on the table and says, my name is Miss Maria. I am Miss World and my name is written across the sky. To which point she grabbed my goldfish Archibald. What was called Archibald? I just don't know. And swallowed it and ate it. I was like kind of horrified by that more than the naked woman dancing on the table. My father came back that night and went, oh, fascinating. I wondered if she'd have one of those episodes. The next nanny, I realized that something was slightly strange when one day she kind of seemed to be completely agitated and then proceeded to bite me all over my body. Um, And then my father said, oh, that's an interesting one. Again, we were trying to see, we thought she had some early, um, you know, Munchausen by proxy and we thought it was a different thing, but actually it's a psychotic episode again, at which point we realised my father thought it was interesting to bring patients back from the Maudsley as my nannies because it gave him observation of them at that time. Now, again, I don't, I don't have a sense of a, like a trauma there. I have a sense of my grandparents coming over occasionally to rescue us, but my parents lived this, I mean, such a fast life. I just remember the the emotion and the, the passion between them, the, it was explosive and that was kind of Throughout my first 20 years, they were, they, I think they, they screwed nearly everything that moved. <laughs> Loads of affairs going on. It was a kind of crazy kind of 70s, late 60s, 70s London, and they were full on into this mad world. And I think when I look through that, I think I just bounced from school to school. Maybe that was my sense of look at me, notice me. I don't think that, but maybe it was at the time. And maybe that's why I didn't care because there was this kind of crazy, almost like, and when I look at it now, like my mum has been my rock and is my legend and guides me still every day of my life. And my dad did for a while until things got complicated. But as I grew up a bit, as I bounced around schools, um, in fact, actually, you'll love this. My mum once had a, when she was made head of occupational medicine Europe, and she did a speech and I was there, I was about 
14 or 15. She said, I'm so proud of my son. He's here tonight. He's been expelled from some of the best schools in this country. And she meant it. And she meant it. And she always didn't mind what I did. She was always there for me, even though it was complicated. So there was this car crash happening, Gems. And I guess when I was 13, I think, was a, was a really uncomfortable time of my life where we realised there was a line in their emotional relationship. And the line happened to be my uh, mum's best friend. And my father sleeping with her pushed the boundary too far and they moved into divorce. And actually a car crash because my mum had a head-on collision after this being revealed. and As in an actual actual, car actual crash. An actual car crash, yeah. Uh, it was going to be a car crash, but there was an actual one as well. And, uh, you know, I was at boarding school since seven. You get brought back and you get the trauma. And, and again, to carry on that trauma, they, my parents moved into action. My mum saw a divorce lawyer. And I now know she's seen a divorce lawyer to move me to America. And I now know because I've just recently read it on that first meeting, they got on so well that they went to a hotel room on the first meeting your and mom, had sex. Your mum and the divorce lawyer. And the divorce lawyer, which called me crazy, but I don't think you meant to do that with the law, but I may be wrong. Maybe times have changed and whatever. And they did eventually marry. My father went into action, sold the family house and boxed all the things from our rooms up. <laughs> and we never had a, a room in his house again. Now, I never really thought about that till the other day. I was 12, I guess, when that happened. But it feels a bit strange when you look back at 12 or 13, when you look back at that. So it's no wonder, given your early childhood, and I've just got the, the nanny and the goldfish, <laughs> it's no wonder from that to the divorce in such quite unique circumstances, I think it's fair to say, that for the first part of your life, it was difficult to like yourself in a sense like you know to, I mean, that, to, I, to like others i mean i think it that gives permission to it and i'm not sure and actually i'm not even sure i seek permission i think i was something else for whatever context made me something else and and i think it's again if i look at the kind of evolution and what i learned from that i think is it, it did change me in some good ways i mean i i mean synopsis of the next sort of 30 years which is quite a, a quick synopsis my family is that i I drifted closer and closer to my mum. Mm. She did extraordinary work and you know, her work at the Royal Mars and stuff. She was she was great. And my father, I was really close to him, got closer, and then suddenly it all went wrong again. Mm. And I think, again, this is when I began to learn because my father was made what he was by other people. He was made to be this egocentric maniac because everyone loved him. He kept getting these awards, international awards for his family, psychiatry and you'd go i go to places where there'd be everyone just waited for him to speak and it made him this mad egocentric person which i think eventually actually killed him and so as i began to get independent i realized that that he began to hate i was breaking away when i met kathy and she became my focus or my adoration he couldn't cope with that anymore he didn't want to see me anymore and i became rejected by that and all i was doing was learning i'm saying I'm not going to be like him. Mm. I'm not going to be like him. And I I think it was at that stage in my life when I look back that I, I kind of began to think, and I can come back to this, that life is like walking on a tight rope. And I honestly, I, I have seen so many dark pools belief and dark balloons behind me that I think it's so, so easy to fall off. I think I'm really lucky I haven't fallen off yet. I may still fall off. But to keep on this tightrope, when 
essentially life is really hard for everybody and and i understand why people fall into depression and fall into very difficult times because it's so so easy to get your sense of self eroded it's so so easy to to feel unwanted to feel lonely even if we're really busy in our lives you can go back home and feel lonely and you realize you know that actually what you've got isn't satisfying and and I think I began to think I'm not going to be that because my father pushed everyone away. He pushed everyone away because they never lived up to his expectations. Actually, I thought, James, it makes me think of three things, which are three tiny things in the rest of my journey with my dad, which again helped me learn, which was mm. we had lots of rec reconciliations in weird places because I, I wanted to love my dad. I loved my dad. I wanted to find a way back. And he'd only ever see me without Kathy. He never met my kids, by the way. You know, never okay. met my kids who were, you know, up to probably 15 before he I was going to say, what was their age? 15 ish, yeah. maybe even older. It wasn't interesting that. Anyway, I met one reconciliation and I remember it because I don't know, something you said the other day. And I thought it went quite well until I got the letter through the post. I always get excited. My dad wrote letters right? and, and big, crazy medical handwriting. And this letter was titled, The 20 Reasons Why I Don't Like You. After my meeting, which I realized maybe the reconciliation hadn't gone as well as I thought at the time. And the end saying, if you want this to go any further, you have to come on bended knee to my house and apologize for what you've been. We carried on trying to make reconciliations. The The next one can, I love. Can I just ask, how, how did that letter, how did that letter make you feel? So I get us back to this tightrope thing and back to something that I'm really conscious of um, and wearing my heart where I do in my hands. Life Gems hurts me an awful lot. Still does a lot every week. Things hurt me. And that was incredibly painful. But, it, but actually, you know, I'll tell you the real truth about all that is my life is highs and lows mm. and I'd have it no other way. Mm. So I have fantastic emotional highs where... You know, I'm crying with laughter and love and warmth and I feel the most amazing thing. And I have things because I open myself up. I cry all the time. <laughs> you know, I'll go into things and I will feel incredibly hurt. And I've had that through my working life, through my personal life, because you open yourself up. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it hurts like hell. Yeah. But I have to say I would, I would never like to be the bland middle. I'd never like to live with no salt in my life. I want to live with the chance of it being like, oh, my God, or, oh, shit. And yeah. I love that. And I go back to my dad again. And like, I mean, this carried on, Jem. So I, I, I had another time. We invited him to our wedding. So Kathy and me got married quite late. Kids came down the aisle with us, the little oh. bastards. And uh, <laughs> literally. And, uh, and How um, old were they when? Uh, oh, I guess sort of. Gosh, gonna, uh, maybe three and four, so three and two, and um, holding our hands. Very beautiful. Oh, and we had yeah. this wonderful wedding in this beautiful Georgian rectory in the Cotswolds. And it was lovely. Um, called the Chocolate House. Anyway, I invited my dad for the great thing. Reconciliation. Woohoo. And he came. And, and there was a great moment, which is captured on film. And my father was on top table, because he would be, because he's my dad. And he summoned me in the way he would summon me Robert Crawford and I remember him he was more into Crawford and and I went over to him and everything went quiet and he was going oh God, it's dad it's a dad dad some moment everything goes quiet and then with a roar of laughter he goes just wanted to say 
You really are a vitriolic little bastard. <laughs> in front of all and, your guests. And that was in front of everyone, recorded and everything. That was his speech, actually. That was his blessing. Um, he did write me a letter, though, a few days later, which was nice. And he pointed out it was the second worst day of his life was the wedding. Wow. Um, um, did he say what the first was? I know. Funny enough, I didn't really ask because um, it got a bit more heated when he tried to He'd suggested he was going to put a flower up my mother's bottom at one point in the wedding. That was another thing. But uh, he was, but uh, he was this. But I mean, honestly, James, people love my dad. People were always sleeping with my dad, mm. you know. And even going through that stage, you know, I mean, so my half brother, my half brother's nearly thirty years younger than me. His mother is nearer my age. And my dad, I think, went out with her older sister. It was her. Her mum was one of my dad's best friends. He went out with her older sister and then her younger sister. Matthew is, is a lovely boy, but also troubled from my father. Actually, again, my, you know, my father's dead now. He died a few years ago. He died horrifically, gents. He bled out in a terrible way, blood everywhere, and did what only my dad would do. He'd arranged with executors that if he died, that everything had to be covered up for two months so that his children wouldn't know he was dead. So we only heard about it by reading a big two-page or one-page in the Times about what a brilliant family psychiatrist he was and what he'd contributed to psychiatry around the world. And it was, he'd been buried two months before. And I had to ring my brother, my, his other wife, my sister, and let them know that. But I came out of that, with again, with this really strong thing that my dad taught me lots. My dad taught me, you know I love food, you know I love wine. You know, I love my big driveway. Uh, I love emotion. <laughs> I love passion. And they were like, they were this incredibly passionate couple. And, and I love all that. And when I talk to my son about how to identify Belitas edulis, which is a sep, you know, or, you know, when a fresh girole is done or whatever, and the beauty of food and wine, and he loves it as well. I mean, he taught me that. But he also taught me that I'm never going to be like him because I didn't need anybody, and I haven't for 30 years, to tell me really well done, to tell me thank you, to tell me to give him the accolades that made him hate everyone because people wouldn't comment on the cactus on the table or the flowers in their bedroom or the second wine they had. He needed that reinforcement. I don't need any of that. The reason I do everything I do is because I love people and I love people to feel good around me. And that is more reward than you can ever get. And that changed my life in terms of how I think about what is important in friendships and relationships and life. I think you learn, Gems, that, that like you and your lovely family, you, it's like I never stopped loving my dad, and my dad never stopped being part of what I am, as my mum was. And it's very easy to, in our busy lives, to forget how fundamental those foundation stones are to who you are and your very being. And again, what I've learned is put the time into those because they are really easy to ignore but put the time into family you know everybody my sister my brother we always we always loved my dad and we'd have been there in a flash and he died lonely and sad and he never had to and so again i i've reconnected with my half brother who i don't know very well because there's still time to do it and as soon as you meet someone who has some history of you. You know what it's like. I've known you quite a long time. You just feel this great, great warmth. And I and we spend way too much of our time and energy on things that are not 
really connected to what actually makes us grow, makes us survive, makes us feel real, you know. I couldn't agree more, and I do want to talk about that, but I just want to go back to a point from before. Which is it going to make me cry now? No, I don't think so. Um, but interestingly, you say you don't need thank yous and well dones, but I find that almost ironic because you always are the first to congratulate people, to be kind, to make people feel good about what they've done and to always say thank you. So it's interesting when you say you don't need it, but actually you're the first to do that. Yes, it's probably selfish. I mean, again, I think what I learned, probably again, I'm going to use 30 because it was a kind of key time for me as well. I became nice when I was 20, but I think I really developed when I was 30. And I, there is no doubt when I look at my life is that um, if I can support, nurture, make people feel good in whatever they're doing or help them do things... I get so much reward. <laughs> honestly, it's like, honestly, it's like the, you know, I, I, I look around sometimes and, you know, someone contacted me um, yesterday from, from Meta, someone who used to work for us, and all these people contact me that I have worked with and loved and, and hopefully helped on their careers. You know, they're obviously brilliant people and they've done brilliantly, mm. loads of them. And, and I love the fact I'm still in contact with them. I love, Kathy calls them my other family. Mm. She says, you're like dad to all these people. And I love that because yeah. if someone does something and you can engage and tell them they did something great, you feel great about it. There's something beautiful in the reciprocity bias, Gems. I don't need it to come back to me, but I love to start positive ripples because I feel it. And I, you know, I love telling people good things or helping people because it makes me feel fantastic. And I think my dad would have done that to make him feel good. And that's why he always felt let down. And I'm never going to let myself be like that. It doesn't mean you get don't get hurt, Gems. It doesn't mean, you know, life doesn't throw some real shit at you, you know. It certainly does. But it's that tightrope, isn't it? It is a tightrope. And, you know, I think that's the thing that really scares me is the tightrope. And I think I've been so lucky. You asking me to reflect and, and the difficult things that I think crafted me into realising what is important um, could have gone completely the other way. Mm. you know i could have just i could have fallen you know yeah well, what's that what's that thing i could have been drowning not waving but when when um going back to the tightrope analogy because i do find it absolutely fascinating and you have really made me think um that we are all on this tightrope and it just takes something maybe quite small to make you fall i think that is such a good point james i think that is to anyone who's is listening and any of my friends that I hope listen as well, I mean, I say it to them as well. Life is so fragile and it's extraordinary what can suddenly take you to a very dark place and you find it really hard to get back from. We build castles in the sky. The more mm. powerful they get, we build bigger castles because, hey, we're really important. And, you know, all these people around us tell us how important we are. And the castle grows and grows and grows. And it's absolute nonsense because... Usually that castle on the people around you is superficial, but you don't get to see that until you fall. And what I think I learned again a long time ago is I became more about taking some responsibility for me and not being what my dad was, was I'd look, at, look around me and say, actually, what I need is a few people who 
I feel really connected with, who I feel were really part of my my world and I can be part of their world, are worth a million around all those superficial acquaintances. I don't mean to freak you out, Gems, because I know you know everyone. But all those <laughs> superficial acquaintances <laughs> that we build and suddenly you go, hey, hey, I've got 5,000 LinkedIn followers. I mean, it's and, and then suddenly you're spending ages replying to people or following people and it becomes nonsense. And again, I, I've left places where everyone loves me. Okay, I'm really important. It's brilliant. And then you never hear from anyone and again. You never hear, no. And, it, no. and so you invest precious precious time your time is really precious you're young james i'm old but your time is precious even if you are young because again if i said to you imagine you only had 20 halloween dinners left who do you want to spend them with do you mean cabaloween dinners i wasn't going to say that but <laughs> uh, and well obviously it would be cabal but i began to think that it's like you know maybe maybe i've got 15 or 20 christmases left Maybe I've got 15 or 20. Put them on the wall. Maybe I'm going out twice for dinner this week and times that. And, oh, my God, I've only got a 400 dinners left in my life. Who do I want to have dinner with? Well, I don't want to have dinner with them because they're superficial. They're nonsense. They don't, they're just this, is, it, is the right word, the artifice that makes you think you're important because you collect people who, and, they, and they only like you because you're important. I hate that. Yeah. Yeah, and they drain you, gems. Drain. They drain we you. About that get earlier, rid, get rid of everyone listening. Look at your look at look at do the eighty twenty. Look at hundreds the hundred percent of all you know. Get rid of eighty of them because they're probably drains and don't give you what you really love yeah. and need. Sap your energy. Sap it all away. So even though I I value so much the the support network and building a community, as you know, I've, I've built my whole career around. But because I genuinely love people and bringing people together. I've also... We love you for that too, Jen. <laughs> I've also... Love you too. Um, in my life, I've I've had cullings of friends, which actually I've never admitted before. Not now admitting it. In um, fairness, I think killing the them is wrong. I think... Uh, culling. <laughs> okay. Culling. Where, and you know, you know when it happened, when I, I left I left an evening once, a dinner, and I thought, well, I'll never get that, that night back. And actually, I feel really bad about myself for being around these people. And that's not a good feeling. And you can spiral. You go back to that tightrope. That's the kind of thing that can help you, you know, can with I, your footing. I want to help you with that thought because you're not culling friends. They well, weren't friends. That's fair. That's fair. And, I, and that's yeah. the superficiality of stuff. Yeah. You just, you pick up stuff, which is, which when you actually, I mean, so you watch lots of people who retire, stop work, and then they have nothing because mm -hmm. actually all the things they invested in were superficial. Like, I sometimes meet young people now who seem to be very interested in talking to me. I think, don't invest time in me. I'll be gone soon. And, and it, it, it's... Can we stop this, please? Please. It's very well, I mean, fit you know, and healthy and... Not so fit and healthy. Well, but, uh, but um, looking good. But I, but I do think it's like, look at your diary. And there's a great thing in behavioural science, which is all about discounting the future. And Kathy stops me now because I do it all the time when people say... Uh, next year, do you want to do this? We talk at this. Will you go to this? We fly to this. And your tendency, because it's next year, is go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, when you get there, you go, why am I doing this? Yeah. Why am I doing this? Yeah. It's like, and it's so easy to fill your life with things which actually are not actually, they don't add color, warmth, or whatever to your life. They're superficial. Yeah, I learned a long time ago it's not about managing your time, it's about managing your energy. Yeah. And actually, every day, I look through that lens 
Yes. I'm not saying I get it right every day. And, I, and, there's, and there's different things like, you know, you're, you're a pioneering business person. So there's times you have to pioneer your, your things and that takes some energy. But, but I promise you, that I don't believe anyone couldn't look at what they do and say 60, 70% isn't worthwhile. Yeah. You know, and that is and feel liberated by that thought, yeah. you know. Yeah. Honestly, this there's so much here. We could we could talk about this the whole time, but I want to get back to to you and um and your your incredibly successful career, which I think it's fair to say you've launched quite a few businesses, had lots of very interesting experiences along the way. Can you pinpoint a time within your career that made you feel truly uncomfortable? Yeah, I mean, I think again, if you if you wear or you, if you wear your heart or have your heart in your hand, if you, I think I might have my head in my hand as well sometimes, my brain in the hand. For whatever reason, I I I have been blessed with or not blessed, which way you want to look at it, with with ideas and I and things that interest me that that haven't been done that I've decided I want to do. I try to be very forward focused, and I think it's mainly because. I fear falling off the tightrope. And I think if you do something entrepreneurial, lots of people say you've got to be this kind of ruthless, individualistic self-belief. Self-belief is really important. But the most important thing is infectious self-belief that brings beautiful people along with you because that's actually what makes things successful. And yes, Gems, I've done really... I mean, don't put me as an entrepreneur, I've failed it's cliche of course but i've failed in way more things i've launched way more companies that have gone under and created us financial problems than i have and i've been lucky to have some successful ones i'm the guy who some success i mean 15 yeah okay, i've been lucky pretty successful, pretty successful. I, mean, yeah. I, yeah, I mean i mean but i built i built a company with kathy 15 years ago and some really cool people where we thought we could create the first ai company creating movies out of photographs oh wow and we did some great stuff. I still think it's great today. No, and I don't regret any of that. I do regret I do regret back to getting really hurt. So in my journey of entrepreneurship, people hurt you, Gems, and people hurt you really bad. And like my first company that I created came out of me being hurt in an advertising agency. And I was I was very senior in that advertising agency, very, very senior. And and it kind of fell out with some new people. And they became very vindictive, you know, and this particular person, I remember made me come into an office. I wasn't really working on projects anymore and sit for 10 months without working every day coming in to serve my contract and stuff. And and then again, all these people said, don't worry, we're going to support you when you're gone. And, you know, and I felt I'd looked after and cared for lots of people. And I left and. And you never heard from anyone. And and that made me realize something back to what we just talked about is about most of it was because I was important and all the friends were therefore superficial and it was only because I was important I could probably make their jobs or give them better jobs or whatever or promote them and and again I've had a few bigger ones than that I've had ones where you know um, I've ended up in high court or with a high court summons at least of some with something I didn't do anything wrong and that took two years of my life out, uh, unpaid two years of my life. That's why you become ill because you, you know, I remember being in a meeting with this lawyer who seemed to say that I was this evil person that I had never, and I wasn't, I'd never been evil and it's made out you're evil. And she was horrible. And I remember going into the toilet and vomiting my guts out in this meeting. And then, 
being dragged in like I was a terrorist into high risk, which is a company that tends to look after high corporate espionage. And they'd analysed all my computer records because it was their right. And then just sat there trying to embarrass me about things on my computer which were irrelevant. Or, you know, who did you have dinner with in New York? And if you couldn't remember, oh, so you were stealing from the company. And this went on and on and on. And it was horrible. And we lost a lot of money. And and I kept on thinking, I, I've never meant any harm to anyone here. You know, and... I remember my stepfather, the divorce lawyer, who is now my stepfather, who's now a judge, saying to me when I said to him, you know, when I was in tears going, I'm, I don't know what is going on. I didn't do anything wrong. What is going on is not fair. And told me I was naive and stupid to think that civil law was about right or wrong. It's only about money or power. And they have the money and the power. I wish that wasn't true. What, is what, what, what did you learn from... I wish, I wish all those people, no harm, no wrong, whatever. I just think, I walked away and I thought to myself, you are creating negative waves in the world. You're creating negativity around you. And in all my experiences, that just drains life away and their life will be poorer for it, not richer. I came up fighting as well on both yeah. those times. Yeah. Both those times led to two global companies that were successful. And I felt really, really good about that. And so it's amazing how many people, back to the tightrope, because I have this kind of image in my head that actually when you're a bit tilting to one side, there's a lot of hands pushing you back. Mm. And sometimes if you just pursue goals in work and stuff, I think there's no one there. The people disappear when you fall back. No yeah. one catches you. Yeah, and it's those people that catch you when you're falling off that tightrope that are there. I visualise it that they're yeah. there kind of by the sides. Beautiful, beautiful. And that is that is the riches, that structure around you. Nurture them. Get rid of all the shit. So get rid of all the sandcastles and build some proper yeah. brick castles around yeah. you and less of them yes. is the motto, but just the, the best ones. What life's about. Yeah. It's beautiful. You, you mentioned failure quite a lot. And I'm just really intrigued... What do you think you've you've learned from the failure that you've had? You've learned from from those really dark times. Gosh, it's when you you look at is it failing as a as a person, failing as a in in business, Both. or just failing? What I've learned is is don't question yourself. Particularly, not everyone has been an entrepreneur, but when you do something, don't question yourself. People have so much self-doubt and I think it's a really dangerous thing. I think self-doubt can actually make you, put you into a dark, fragile place. Mm. And as I said, life is so fragile. It's so easy. You know, there's a, there's a person who I often say to her when she has a bad time, we need to sit and let's get rid of the black balloons. Let's let them go into the sky. Let's get rid of those because they get very down and very upset about things. And again, so I've learned that you've got to have that kind of positiveness you've got to you know you've got to have a level of kind of self-belief I guess and I guess with failure going back to the thing I said right at the beginning I think I am you know lots of people don't want to live like this but I I love living highs and lows mm. it makes the highs better it sometimes makes the lows more bearable mm. and I, I love that. I love, I'm never going to be someone who drinks one glass of red wine. If I'm going to drink red wine, I'll drink a couple of bottles and I know I shouldn't. 
you know. I'll and do good everything. red wine as well. Yeah. You're not going to drink the rubbish if, stuff. If I'm going to go out, I'm going to have a good time. If I'm going to, you know, be naughty, I want to be really naughty, you know. And and I and I so I I really say, you know, grab life, really grab life, and and really love those highs. And the highs will cushion you from the lows. And don't, believe me, the lows will hurt like hell. But then the high, whoa. Because if I'm low and I go high again, that's a big journey. That's a big, hey, you know. Yeah. What do you think people misunderstand about you? <laughs> Actually, most? you know what? I think I haven't really thought about this till recently, till you, till I was getting uncomfortable to be uncomfortable here. I think I'm full of energy and I'm full of excitement. I'm a bit like a Labrador. I go, yes, what can we do today? And I think sometimes people probably think, oh, he's a cocky kind of arrogant um, person and very, very near the surface is a real vulnerable kind of heart in the hands person. And so therefore sometimes people might go, oh, I hate his kind of cockiness or his energy and whatever, where actually it's probably part of my protection of me. And your vulnerability. Um, yeah, and vulnerability is really there. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how someone I really liked and been really bubbly with and then I heard them and they'd said yeah yeah I, the reason I feel I need to know Crawford is because he's successful otherwise I would have nothing to do with him well I hope you and I culled thought, that person I think I life. just cried it's like kind of like whoa you know and 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 it's because they kind of you know because sometimes if you're tigs and you're full of energy I guess it's irritating but it's part of my self-protection um because when I do that it's probably I'm as nervous as hell and I never, I do stuff like coming in here. I mean, I'm wiping my palms and my trousers, and uh, you know, <laughs> it's sort of, and you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm nervous because I know that quite close to the surface is again this kind of really vulnerable person who's literally putting my heart out to you, gems. You can poke it or you can stroke it. That just sounded rude. I'm okay with rude, but I would definitely stroke it. <laughs> Whether that sounds rude or not, definitely wouldn't be poking your heart, Crawl. But people have said to me, it's often those people are projecting their insecurities. So sometimes you have to look at why they're throwing the stones they're throwing, which is hard because you just no, I, honestly, want to get rid. <laughs> I think you're spot, you're spot on there. I mean, I think that in my household, if something isn't quite right, where people have done something, our first response will be they must be having difficulty around their lives. Yeah. And and actually, it's quite liberating that mm. because, you know, it's not you. It's the fact that they've got horrible things they're having to deal with. And that's why they're being really horrible. Yeah. Uh, and and it makes you care about them, but it also makes you feel better if they've been nasty to you. So I do think that's a really good what you talked about. There. It's a really good life lesson because yeah. it's it is. Yeah, you know, as I said, lots of people do have tough lives, you know. So, and and people can feel jealous, but they're feeling jealous because their life's not right. So go mm. behind that and actually think you feel sorry for them, not angry with them. is probably a better thing. But you know what I really love about the reciprocity bias is usually the other way. It's great to stop. You can stop negative waves. Yes. You know, and that's quite empowering. We all talk yeah. about the positive, but actually what a great thing to do when you could actually defuse a negative wave. It's not going any further. This ain't going to flap its wings around the world. I love that. I love that too. So since we're talking about brainy stuff for a second, it's made me think of your book, 
how your <laughs> brain is wired, which was nearly called something else, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Oh, God, how did you remember that or knew that? Yeah, uh, so how, how Your Brain is Wired, an owner's manual, which I'm incredibly proud of, I wrote with Kath. And, and again, we wanted to write a book for everybody. And from all the work we do with businesses and governments around the world, it's a book for everybody. And for those who know me, I'm a little bit dyslexic. He does rub in his legs again in a slightly nervous way. <laughs> um, you know, for the person who writes lots of things, I can't spell. You know, I can't get there, the, where, where. I mean, I'm terrible. Obviously, that's why I married Cathy, the English graduate, who's brilliant at that. And... I think it was like we were writing this book for many years and she got so, so bored of me spelling brain, Brian, <laughs> um, which is a very classic dyslexic INA. Um, and I still do it today that actually we called the book for many years, um, How to Rewire Your Brian. And unfortunately, the publisher said it was a bit of an in-joke. We kind of regret we didn't stick with it. I regret you you didn't as well. Um, Because, you know, because sometimes our brains can be real Brian's. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I apologise to all the Brian's listening. And also, I think that you would have had an even bigger impact, actually, because people have always felt they had to hide their neurodiversity and particularly dyslexia. Going through that with, with my son at school at the moment. And you shouldn't have to. Yes, I really hope your son is having a good journey with it because it's hard. And I think when I look back and all the expulsions from the schools, it's probably because of my dyslexia. Mm. I mean, you know, people thought I was stupid. And then I think I was kind of lucky, whatever in my, whatever happened, I started doing things like I won chess competitions and I won, I don't know, some lateral thinking competitions. And suddenly the school wasn't educating me right and everything changed. I just couldn't do it. But now they thought they were wrong and I wasn't wrong. So they stopped beating me or whatever they used to do in those days, which they did. Yeah, they used to beat me a lot. And it's uncomfortable and, in itself, isn't it? It was kind of uncomfortable mm. in itself. Yeah. And it was kind of weird. And then I got offered really small grades to get anywhere because I was apparently really clever, but I wasn't being challenged enough. I wasn't really clever. It was just, but I had dyslexia and I guess it didn't exist in those days. Do you know the interesting thing? I kind of thought about this the other day. I never really told my mum about stuff like that at school. And I guess you just felt it's what it is and it would upset them. And I'm glad I never did. Because it didn't, I mean, I, as I said, I didn't look back at my school career and go, what a terrible career. I think, mm. oh, at school, that was fun, you know. Yeah, and what you learned from it and what it yeah. made you into today, which is which is pretty impressive. I learned if you behave really badly, you can get home a lot of, a lot of time, really, and spend much more time at home than at school. Any children listen to this, uh, ignore that last. <laughs> so we, we've, we've done a lot of reflecting today. I just want to bring us back to, to now. What makes you uncomfortable today? Oh, geez, James. So I, I kind of, um, I mean, could I be any more uncomfortable? I might have to, you know, I am very uncomfortable today. And I think, I think um, if I'm really honest with you, I think I'm, I think I'm facing a time in my life which is, a really complicated time and I think it's an age I am and you know we've got a number of issues in our family health issues and stuff and I'm worried that my balancing act my tightrope walking is probably more vulnerable than I've ever been and I think I'm really worried that I might not be balancing but I might be falling I'm going to be one of those people on the tightrope to keep you, keep you on. 
I think I have a tear in my eye right now. On the, <laughs> on the tight That's kind of what I feel. Well, thank you. Thank you for your, your honesty and your vulnerability. Um, it, it really is um, inspiring. Um, and there are many people around you to keep you away from those black balloons. That is for sure. Why do you think it's important for brands and businesses and leaders to continue to get uncomfortable? I think we we build up lots of superficial things which aren't important and and I think we don't therefore protect people who work with us enough as well. And I think again the thing I might talk about vulnerability, you know, if someone is with me and someone is part of my work and part of working with me, my job is to nurture and care for them. You know, and is to think that life is very fragile, their life is very fragile. That's that thing I said. Self-identity, self-worth are so easy, easy to erode. And, you know, your job is not to erode those. Your job is to help people build those and feel those. Because otherwise, you know, it's so easy to hurt people. You know, I'm not talking about creating big business empires. I'm talking about the only thing that actually matters is people. people. The only thing that actually makes my life richer is not the money, not the blah, 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 not my very long drive. <laughs> it's the people. And, and you know, businesses have a real ability to nurture, to care and keep people's self-worth and look after those sort of things more than, you know, more than many people, you know. I love that. Thank you. That's a, that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Craw, for sitting in our prickly chair. Yeah, and feeling I'm very prickly chair. I just, I'm, yes, feeling very uncomfortable on so many things, but thank you, Gems, for having me. I've, um, I, I love your the podcast i love the first series and um yes it's it's kind of weird getting uncomfortable like this and i think it's going to be impact and change in my life for the years to come i think it's going to impact the listeners as well because there's so much to take from your story and there's so much to learn i've certainly learned a lot um thank you yeah well, I also I'm very lucky that I've got beautiful kids and a beautiful wife, and 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 I still talk to my mum every day. So hey, let's get our bag on that tight road and walk. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much, Crawford. Um, thank you for joining us and getting uncomfortable. Thank you for having me. I'm Gemma Greaves, and Are You Sitting Uncomfortably is a Fresh Air production, and the producers are the wonderful Izzy Clark and Clara Kavanagh. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do me a massive favour and follow us, recommend us. And if you're feeling really lovely, leave us a review. The bigger the following, the more opportunity to have the best guests like Crawford. And I want to have these uncomfortable conversations in my prickly chair. Thank you so much. Thank you.